folks, and welcome to the Sense and Theory podcast, where we cut through the bias and extremism to find common ground that brings us together. Uh, today, we're going to do something a little bit different, so please excuse the lapse in sound quality. We are actually connecting from all corners of the world to bring you today's episode. Yeah, we're pretty excited. We have an interview today, but obviously to pull it off, we've had to do a little bit of technical wizardry. So this means that I'm not going to be bolstered by being able to look into Sense's eyes, but Mm. we're still going to try to produce a quality episode for you guys. (laughs) So, uh, you know, when we launched our podcast, we felt like we, of course, needed to have a presence on all the old familiar social media platforms. Neither of us had ever messed with Twitter much because we were happier then. But we jumped <laughs> first and started trying to get a lay of the land, as it were. Uh, after identifying some reasonable accounts and endlessly clicking on people who we should follow, we ended up with one account in our feed that was in particular delightful. That account belonged to Miss Iona Italia. And I got to tell you, folks, it gets dark and hopeless on Twitter sometimes. And Iona's tweets were a ray of sunshine some days. Oh, eventually, thank you. <laughs> eventually, we figured out that she had this awesome body of work at Aereo Magazine and other places. And after reading her pieces and her tweets, I have to admit she's been instrumental in tempering my views on a number of issues. And that wasn't all we found, because through Iona, we discovered another voice of reason amongst the trolls and tribalism rife on Twitter. Um, I was first introduced to Miss Helen Pluckrose's writing with an article she published at Aereo. Uh, is that Ario or Aereo? Um, Aereo. Aereo. All right. I just got to make sure I got it right. Um, the article was titled, No, Postmodernism is Not Dead and Other Misconceptions. And I came across this after we recorded our episode eight on postmodernism. And honestly, I was a little miffed I didn't come across her writings before we recorded that episode, but I think we did an okay job anyway. Um, So, yeah? Yeah, yeah, I think you you did, yeah. (laughs) Wonderful, wonderful. Helen and Iona have recently partnered to produce their own podcast called Two for Tea. Uh, It's about politics, society, science, and art. And as Iona so eloquently put it before their first episode, how everyone besides them is wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Helen and Iona are editors at Aereo Magazine. It's an opinion and analysis digital magazine focused on current affairs, in particular, humanism, culture, politics, human rights, science, and free expression. And I unclog toilets and you spend your workday writing code in your underwear. Sweet. (laughs) Let's do this. Ladies, (laughs) welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you. Just to establish uh, a kind of baseline, can we talk for a minute about where you guys are at politically? Uh, I've heard you both describe yourself as leftists or liberal, uh, and I'm curious, what specific beliefs do you hold that that align you with the left? Well, uh, for me, um, my leftist um, beliefs are the the, the sort of the common ones. I I believe in um, progressive taxes, in universal health care, in... in inequality issues of um, equal opportunity and um, provision of, of opportunity for people regardless of their gender, race and uh, sexuality. But the liberal uh, part is much more, um, much, much more central to me than any sort of particular policy. So that the whole sort of liberal leftist idea is one that that sort of goes back to these ideas of freedom, of humanitarianism, of humanism, of inclusiveness. And this has been associated 
um, with the left uh, for most of history, but is um, is also found among um, you know people in the sort of centre right. So I'm an old-fashioned tax and spend leftist. Um, I do um, believe that we need a capitalist system because capitalism is the only efficient way of. Uh, creating wealth generation and without some wealth generation in our society we can't fund social programs but I would like capitalism with very strong social safety nets such as uh, free of, at point of use healthcare and education including higher education um, I'd like to see higher education uh, numerically restricted on the basis of academic merit but not on the basis of finance. I also um, think we should be doing a lot more to combat climate change and to protect the environment. Um, I'm in favor of congestion charges for cars. I want to see bike lanes. Um, I would also... Um, I think that's the basis of my kind of tax and spend uh, leftism. Uh, I'd like okay. to see considerable safeguards for the economically vulnerable groups in our society um, and a lot more means-tested benefits. I'm also in favor of universal basic income. And I, um, the more liberal part of my uh, allegiances um, is that I am a very strong proponent of free speech. I sometimes describe myself as a free speech extremist. <laughs> I like that. I'm also... <laughs> I'm taking that. <laughs> um, I'm also... I, unlike uh, Helen, I'm not an atheist, but I am a very strong secularist. I do not like to see religion involved in government at all. I'm also... Uh, I'm also a feminist. I'm a... Um, supporter, strong supporter of gay rights, LGBT rights, more correct, to put it more correctly. And I would also um, legalize all forms of consensual sex, including prostitution, pornography, and I would legalize all drugs. Wow. That, that's that's actually, you know, over here, that's a little extremist. Uh, I tend to agree with you. I lean on, you know, almost all the way with you uh, in that regard. Um, but yeah, that, that would paint you as an extremist over here. <laughs> Legalizing all, even even heroin. Uh, you know, in the midst of this crisis we're facing, that's that's a tough sell on this side of the pond. Yes. I, yes. Um, are there any... <laughs> uh, I was going to ask: Are there any typically right-wing views that you that you do possess? Um, anything that kind of pulls you over to the other side at all? Well, I think it's necessary to. Oh, sorry, I'll I'll answer that first, and then I'll let Helen answer. I think that um, I don't have the best understanding of economics, but I think it's very important to make sure that economic incentives are correctly aligned. So you can't rely on people's good nature for things. You have to make it worth their financial while. And so I would not, I would not place a massive, um, I would never place, for example, a 90% tax on billionaires. I think that would just lead to brain drain um, and people putting, uh, taking their money elsewhere. And 
I also um, I'm also undecided as to whether or not I favor a minimum wage. So on some economic issues, I mm. could be persuaded by right wing views, especially because I don't understand economics. I want to see strong social safeguards, but we also need to generate wealth. And so we need to do that in the most efficient ways. And those may not always be the nicest ways. Okay. Helen, uh, you want to you provide anything there? Yeah, well, I think mostly where I am accused of, of being right-wing and what is more traditionally right-wing is like Iona, I do think the evidence shows that capitalism is a system which enables us to fund social programs. And so we have to grudgingly accept this. Um, on a more sort of... Um, philosophical or, or ethical level, when I take the uh, moral foundations tests, I come out as strongly conservative on the loyalty um, element, which is to do with a liking for tradition, for history. I mean, we're looking at, if we're looking at tradition, we're not talking about, you know, slavery or patriarchy, but I do understand a conservative impulse towards cultural integrity towards preserving that which is good. And in, and sometimes I have called myself a conservative liberal because what I want to conserve is our intellectual and moral history of liberalism. So uh -huh. I, I do, I do understand this. And I think that some, a place where uh, leftists often go wrong is in disregarding um, conservative uh, intuitions towards preserving that which is good obviously not that which is is better got rid of but some quite sort of neutral things that um that conservatives are more likely to worry about some changes to culture some changes to, to, to tradition i think that is a quite common and relatively harmless um conservative moral foundation that we could pay more attention to mm, i sure i agree sure. i think uh I think what's really interesting is, you know, what you said earlier about positions that were traditionally on the left, like that liberal viewpoint and how now they're being found uh, among the center right more so than they have in the past. And I think it kind of, you know, for me personally, I, I lean right. And I feel like it's, it's not so much that I started leaning right. It's that I was fixed on the certain set of values and everybody else shifted around me. And I find myself closer to the center right now. And uh, I was wondering, I mean, do, do you guys feel like perhaps you've um, you find yourself uh, closer to a center uh, than you used to? I wouldn't. I, th I think I'm. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, Diane. No, you first. Have. <laughs> I, I think I, I do think there has been a significant um Shifting, I certainly, whereas uh, previously as a leftist, my opponents were quite clearly the right. Uh, since we've had a lot more sort of um, authoritarian sort of collectivism on the left, I am increasingly finding that I can find more uh, ethical uh, common ground with the centre and the centre right who fit the descriptions of liberal and humanist than I can with the further left who, who don't fit that at all. Uh, so I would say... Um it depends on which country you're talking about. 
uh, as to where I fit politically. Um, I think within the US, uh, I'm very much, very strongly on the left compared to most people. And I was a supporter of Bernie Sanders, which may give you an idea of my Okay. Uh-huh. Sort of political compass, uh, US wide. I wasn't a big fan of Hillary. I found, um, Hillary, uh, Hillary's policies too, uh, right wing for me, for my taste. Um, but here in India, uh, and here in India also, I'm very strongly on the left, um, because the right is, um, the right is strongly associated with Hindu ethno nationalism. And I'm extremely opposed to ethno-nationalists of all stripes. And I'm also very, very strongly opposed to the idea of a a Hindu uh, nation or a Christian or any other, even a Zoroastrian nation. Um, I don't, I'm a strong opponent of theocracies of any kind. So that places me firmly on the left in terms of UK politics, which I have to confess, I haven't been following uh, very closely for a while. Um, It's less easy to judge because I do not, um, I do not feel that I can uh, vote uh, Labour because I so strongly, I, I have a very strong moral objection to Jeremy Corbyn's leadership and specifically to Corbyn himself. Even though I agree with many points of the party's domestic policies, I feel that uh, Corbyn in his attitude towards world politics um, and foreign policies and also in his anti-Semitic attitudes, I find him morally bankrupt as a leader and I can't in conscience vote for that party. So um, I have some dilemmas where UK politics is concerned, and I'm probably most closely aligned politically with the Liberal Democrats, who are uh, arguably slightly slightly more centrist than um, the Labour Party. Um, and in Argentina, it's such... Can I swear on this podcast? You, you may, yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, in Argentina, it's... Such a, a clusterfuck, um, the politics there, that I don't know where to stand. But I, um, to be honest with you, I have a hard time following American politics as an American. <laughs> so, like, uh, any other country's politics is just straight, straight out the window for well, me. Well, I'm trying to follow, you know, all four of my, what I consider my country's politics. But uh, I don't always do a good mm-hmm. job of it because I also need to have a life. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no doubt. It's kind of one of the things we talk about on the show is uh, with life being so busy and, and complications of, of life, it's really hard to, to follow politics well. I mean, at a surface level, you know, you can read some news, um, but – but to really dig deep, it takes a lot of time. And, and especially if you're raising a family and you've got other obligations, it's, it's just really hard. So uh, th- that's just for, for American politics. So you know, adding three more countries, God, I don't know how you do it. Uh, well, I don't, I guess, <laughs> not very successfully. But also Argentine <laughs> politics is the one that tends to get most neglected because, frankly, there is so little good writing 
um, in the Argentine press. So none of the main uh, newspapers are very readable. There's La Nación, which is such a kind of obviously partisan right-wing paper, but it's the best written. And the one, the more left-leaning paper, Pagina Dose, I find absolutely excruciatingly, appallingly written. Um, so, and we don't have any equivalent of NPR or Radio 4 in Argentina. So it's a little hard to follow Argentine politics. In Indian politics, there are a lot of fantastic uh, journalists. And mostly for Indian politics, even though I subscribe to a lot of newspapers, so there are about 12 newspapers on our coffee table, most of them unread. I mostly just follow wow. journalists on Twitter nowadays. So I wanted to ask you, um, you know, you talked a little bit about uh, about the right wing in India um, having kind of a religious bent. And one of the ideas on our show um, is that we have entered a rapid descent into polarization. And, you know, if you follow American politics with Trump, anti-Trump, everyone's a fascist Nazi or a card carrying communist narrative, um, you, you know, and, and the right being this uh, Christian right wing extremists that, that want to shut down women's rights and stuff. I, I wonder, um, you know, not being a guy who follows politics all around the world, um, are you seeing this same kind of polarization manifest um, you know, around the world, or is this just a case of me being trapped in this U.S. bubble? I think Indian politics is very polarized, but that characterization you just gave of American politics, of the American right, if you took out Christian and put in Hindu, then I think it would be a much, much more accurate and apt description of the Indian right than it is of the American mm. right. Interesting. And, and is that just because the right wing over there is, is just completely uh, religious? I mean, is that well, like a, it's, so, a, you know, a requirement for entry? Um, I would say, no, it's not a requirement for entry. And there are people, um, I think 10% of Muslims, for example, vote for the BJP, the right wing, main right wing party, um, because there's also a lot of corruption and also, many people are voting on the basis of very pragmatic issues. So the party have come and they have put in a, a more accessible source of drinking water in the village. So then people vote for them. So yeah. they, they kind of weigh up. They think, okay, well, I'm a Muslim. These people are very prejudiced against Muslims. But on the other hand, they have got this thing done that we needed to get done. Um, you know, there's a certain element of fascists who make the trains run on time, except that it's more basic needs than 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 just punctual trains. Um, so I I think that there uh, not necessarily is everyone who votes that way a religious extremist, um, but there's a strong I would call it ethno nationalist because many Hindus are also atheists. Um, so they don't literally believe in God, but they do believe in following Hinduism. Um, it's an huh. it's an unusual religion in that way. But um, I would say that yes, there's a very strong um, component that the right is often talking talks about making India a Hindu country again. 
um, imposing, for example, Hindi language on all Indians, whereas at the moment I think less than half of Indians speak Hindi. Um, and sort of unifying the country under this hin Hindi, Hindu, Hindu and Hindi banner, um, where uh, Hindus are uh, only 85% of the population. Um, about another 15% are Muslims, and then there's 5% minorities, including mine, which is the smallest of all, the Parsis. Um, and we're not point not 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 one percent or something of the population. Um, so I feel that this kind of majoritarian populism uh, is very strong in India. And it's also because religion is really, really important here in a way that it's not in the West. I mean, this is a place where you can immediately tell from someone's name whether they are Hindu or Muslim, and by that people mean a kind of birth identity. They don't even mean whether or not you believe in the stuff, whether or not you're an atheist or not. They mean, were you born into a Hindu family or a Muslim family? And, you know, everybody's door, as you pass people's um, uh, houses, everyone's door has religious symbols on it, including ours. So you can see from the door what religion people belong to. You can also, many, many people wear religious garb or symbols like uh, tilak and other symbols for Hindus. Sikhs have turbans. Muslims often wear this specific dress. There are also many women in hijab and burqa. Um, and so there's, and there are little shrines and temples almost every block. So religion is a really strong part of the fabric of society here. Let me let me ask you this though. Uh, one of the one of the premises of our show is that I lean I lean right, he leans left, and we try to find common ground. But that's mm -hmm. easy for us because we've known each other for twenty years, you know. Mm -hmm. So when you're when you're in a situation like that where you know you have those those markers, you're thinking you know you see someone who who presents as Hindi and you're thinking they're, you know, going to lean towards that ultra nationalism or they're going to lean. No, this way not necessarily. Way. I mean, thank God, because if most Hindus lent that way, then, then I think it would be hopeless. But I, um, well, I, you know, many, many Hindus are very tolerant. Um, many are liberal. Um, many are completely non prejudiced. So it's, uh, it's an appeal that is being made to the majority community, but I don't know what the figures are, but it's not at all necessarily the case that most Hindus will support I, that. No, and pardon me for giving that impression. What I, what I mean, I guess, is that we've argued that it's very easy to put people into boxes and to expect things from them. And that is that has tended to increase the level of polarization around politics mm, here mm. and possibly abroad. So it seems like people are finding it harder and harder to overcome that. What do you guys think is the key to restoring our ability to relate to each other? Well, I'm, I'm very glad you asked because um, I wrote with um, uh, James Lindsay, who uh, lives in Tennessee, the um, a manifesto against the enemies of modernity in which we talked about a kind of existential polarization, which is growing up. Um, at the moment, yes, in America, almost also in a certain extent to the to the UK, but uh, really a kind of a phenomenon in which 
um, we are we, we see the extremes of the other side and this and that we feel the need to sort of get yeah, pick uh, one side is really bad so I must then go um, and, and internalize a considerable amounts of my side condone um, some of the the worst bits of them minimize it make excuses for it you know so the the opposite side if if you are slightly left leaning then the far right will um, seem to you to make up sort of almost all of the right it will define the right while your own um lunatic fringe can be then sort of um sort of brushed under the carpet there there's just a, a few of them they're not really a problem and um the other way around as well and so this kind of um spiral in which people feel that they must take a side that they mustn't criticize their own side that there needs to be a solidarity and they end up internalizing sort of minor versions of their own own extremism so you know pe people on the left will start saying um will start to, well identity politics isn't always bad there's there's some truth in that and they'll start to take on some of that and then uh people in the on the uh, sort of center right will suddenly sort of rediscover that some of um traditional gender roles and um and sort of racial uh groupings um isn't really that bad or isn't really a problem or is okay in some circumstances and then you get this real sort of polarization with everything pushing further outwards I think we definitely see that here with with groups like you know Antifa on the left, mm. um, and maybe even you know the Charlottesville guys and the the alt right on the right. Um, you know, I think those things, in some ways, act as magnets. You know, pulling people uh, outwards uh, towards those edges. Yeah, I don't think they're pulled towards the extremists, but pushed away from the extremists on the other side. If you see mm. what I mean, yeah. I don't think. Mm. Many centre righties look at Nazis and think, "Oh, that looks quite good." I think they look right. at the sort of extremes of the other side and and then um, and and then sort of yeah, trying to sort of actually. I, now that you, you put it that way, and I, I see that very clearly. Like on Twitter, you've got you know you got a bunch of people um, with the hashtag. What is it? Where where everyone was leaving. Uh, oh, leaving the Democratic away. Party um, and, and walk away. There you go. Uh, you know, because of things like Antifa and they're saying, ah, oh, this is, you know, this is terrible behavior and, and no one on the left is really criticizing it. Um, of course, they're afraid to criticize the left uh, because, you know, they, they want their team to win. Hmm. Um, and, and, you know, there, there you have it. You've got people kind of being driven away over to the other side. I'd, I'd like to see, and I don't know why we can't, we can't have this um, in America. I would like to see people rally around a center. Um, you know, we've got plenty of plenty of places we, we can find common ground. And, and I just don't understand really why, uh, why we can't have that. I'm, I'm less convinced by, by the idea of a center. I, I think that we need to um, have a left and a right to be sort of productively um, arguing with each other, putting each other to the test and um, trying to, to win support. But where it becomes, um, you know, if, if, we, if we're tr still trying, if we're all trying to be centre, if we're trying to sort of blur values, I don't think that's, that's realistic anyway because we're not going to stop having the kind of moral foundations that we are. We're going to 
compromising on on those is is not really an option. What we suggested that people should do in our manifesto is prioritize um, and ally around the values of modernity, again, around reason, again, around science, humanism, um, liberalism, which is is perhaps a, a similar thing to what you're talking about, but it doesn't require considering oneself politically central. Mm-hmm. So those who consider themselves left would then address and um, tackle the problem on their side, and those who consider them right would attack, would deal with the problem on on their side they would both try to be as um reasonable as ethical as honest as they as they could be to sort of prioritize these these values of liberal secular democracy and and sort of show the rest of society our party is the one that can do that and then sort of productive conversation and sort of pushback could actually is is actually very sort of beneficial for for society, having two parties is um, it works. <laughs> well, I think uh, I think uh, we would I, personally we would absolutely agree with you on that. I, I also I read your piece and I've read that part, and I think I think we are talking about the same thing. It's just a question of how you label it, right? Because I don't mm. think ultimately that we're ever going to find a blending of values, uh, you know, a, a perfect blending of values on abortion. But I do think there are uh, a wealth of issues somewhere in the middle there that we should be holding up. And whereas, you know, we, we've referred to it as centrism, um, you referred to it as championing modernity, which is probably, you know, again, I unclogged toilets. So that is probably the best <laughs> descriptor for it. But I think uh, I think it would be interesting to see people um, find find that commonality in championing those things within their own sides and pushing it mm. forward. Mm. Um, but I think, I think that existential polarization, it's, it's somewhat insidious because not only does it, um, increase, like actually increase the amount, uh, of, of, uh, movement towards the poles in people, but it also makes it appear worse than it is. Do you think I'm, I'm off the mark there? Or do you think it, it does, uh, give it the appearance to be more extreme than it than it in fact is on the ground. Uh, but I I think yes I I think we look at the other side and and we see it as much much um, bigger and worse than it is. So that um, you know people on the left will look at um, ethno nationalists and 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 neo Nazis and say, well, how can you? possibly worry about people being silly in universities when there are people there who want to to throw out or even genocide people of a certain race and then people on the right will say yes but this is a tiny group of extreme lunatics who are universally recognized as bad by people on the right and left while you on the left have got sort of social acceptability within sort of human rights movements within scholarship for ideas which are really quite extreme so this this will kind of go back and forth and then yeah that people on the right will see the whole of the left as these identitarian lunatics and people on the left will see the whole of the right as as neo-nazis and that that is what we were writing about really we wanted everyone to recognize that actually probably the you know probably up to 85 90 percent of the population is not an extremist of any kind they value um an awful lot of the same 
sort of values of of modernity of the enlightenment of, of science and reason if we can just sort of um sort of get them to focus on this and not the extremist on the other side i also feel i don't know my percentages could be well off <laughs> i also feel so i recently read the book deer hunting with jesus um which is you know now about 10 years old i think that book and it's about white trash in the south and i think that one thing that gets lost is we are failing to help people who are um economically disadvantaged firstly because on on the left we've become on both sides i feel we've become very obsessed with symbolism so on the left we are concerned about um there's a lot of concern about equality and equity all of which is wonderful um but those are kind of relative concerns so it's about are african americans disadvantaged compared with white americans for example um and i would agree that they are but i don't feel that the important thing is that 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 comparison is not the important thing the important thing is to boost living conditions safety for everybody so i feel that we get caught up in arguments for example um do the american police kill more innocent black americans than they do innocent white americans and this kind of competition seems very pointless to me i think the important thing is it doesn't matter what the skin color is of the people affected we need to deal with the root cause issues which in this case would be reform of the police and you probably disagree with me but i would advocate eventually disarming the police um but i certainly wouldn't i'm a big i'm a big gun rights guy <laughs> so i it, it, you know i'm not sure how we would convince police to disarm in the face of 300 right, million right. guns mm. in ownership in of america course, yeah, i'm <laughs> not sure of the practicalities very, of that either this is a very very long term goal but we don't need to argue about that i think my larger point here is about um what we need to do is improve make sure that people who are struggling are assisted improve economic circumstances for everybody especially the poorest and most vulnerable we don't need to get into kind of competitions right. over which groups it is we can means right. test and we can right. see right which group is being oppressed exactly more. we can actually just say okay if- everybody whose income is below this level will be assisted and then if you know a very large proportion of those people are African Americans for example okay more African Americans will get assistance and they will also deserve more assistance um but we don't need to but it, about a, a kind of racial competition I I I agree with that um in on a very sort of broad principle level but then I do obviously think if it was to be found to be that um African Americans were in significantly more danger of uh, police violence or of um a very low income that it is actually then worth looking at uh why that mm-hmm. that yes. would be you know then you know, I, I don't I think that's identity politics then when we're looking at yes here is an imbalance what is causing it it could and right we actually yes. we talk about uh races quite a bit on the show we talk about systemic racism and and America is in kind of a unique place there because uh, we have 
we have flat out racist policies that go back to the, you know, the 60s and the 70s. Um, so very much so we are a generation out from dealing with, um, you know, systemic racism, a, a place where, where black people um, were treated absolutely differently, uh, you know, on their face um, across America. So I think, uh, you know, while I also agree in principle, I think if, if people are being shot by police, um, you know, we need to address that. If people are wrongly being shot by police, we need to address that. But, you know, kind of like what Helen was getting at, at the same time, we have a history, um, you know, not very long ago of, of systemic racism, and that kind of poisons the well. So even if, um, you know, black people are being shot by police at a higher rate, uh, and, and it has nothing to do with, like, the individual racism of, of police officers, I think the optics... Um, are impossible mm-hmm. to defeat, and and I do think I, we've seen we've seen cases recently out of Baltimore is going through some crazy stuff right now with cops uh, that were that were kicking down doors of drug dealers, stealing their drugs, reselling them, planting toy guns on people they'd shot, and uh, you know how much of that has to do with racism? I don't know, but I'd I'd wager you know more than we'd mm-hmm. like to think. Um, so so again, while I, I do agree with you in principle, I think we have kind of a unique situation here in America that needs to be dealt with. If if half of the population believes that, that racism is a problem, then, you know, it's, it's a hard thing it to, yeah. um, to skirt around. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think there's definitely a point to be made, though, that sometimes uh, while that is true and I'm you know, I, I fully agree with you. Sometimes the I, I see what Iona was saying and that we get into tedious arguments about uh, sometimes small details and that subtracts us from doing any good to help either of the two. You know, whether we're talking about helping, uh, you know, uh, fewer black people be shot by police or fewer people overall, we're not doing any of it because we're, we're nitpicking and arguing over fine points and details about, uh, you know, who's hurt worse and by what and, and stuff like that. And I think one of the main places where that kind of drives that, uh, at least that I've seen over the last couple of years, is on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, now, both of you have a robust presence on Twitter. And we wanted to ask mm-hmm. you guys, how do you feel about Twitter and social media overall? Is it serving us or has it become an albatross around our necks? I, I would say that I've, I've written a whole whole thing about this. I, I do think that Twitter um, exacerbates certain problems, but, I, you know, that genie isn't going back in the bottle. And what I think we have to focus on more than um, than Twitter's ability to amplify uh, lunacy and really make us aware of lunatic views, which probably existed before but weren't given any kind of platform, is looking at how we're thinking and, and what's, um, what is driving this sort of culturally, ideologically, politically, and actually sort of focusing focusing on that. We, we need to sort of um, change how people think rather than, than try to change how they can communicate it. Yes, I think, you know, I, um, I go back and forth on this. So in some ways I feel Twitter is a nice safety valve. Um, I rant a great deal on Twitter, and as a result, I very rarely rant in real life. Um, and <laughs> I also, um, and I and I don't rant on Facebook. So, for example, I never ever discuss, almost never discuss politics on Facebook. Um, very occasionally, I share an article that I have written, but even then, 
a lot of the articles I've written I haven't even shared with Facebook people because uh, my Facebook is po- Twitter is like your your blow off yes, valve. My Facebook is populated like- by people I know in real life, friends and uh, colleagues from dance. I'm also I'm a dance teacher is my other kind of hat. Um, and um, I don't want to get into political arguments with those people. Whereas I used to, so I used to, for example, have many arguments with family. And now I no longer do that because I have Twitter to have arguments. Um, <laughs> so family dinners are much more peaceful than they used to be. Um, nice. And I think that uh, probably many people use Twitter in that way. So Twitter is our most extreme versions of ourselves. And I always discourage people I know in real life from following me on Twitter. And I'm usually quite alarmed um, when someone on real life finds my Twitter and likes or comments on something. I feel I've been <laughs> caught out doing something bad. Um, it's like, you know, you're sitting peacefully picking your nose and then you look up to see that everybody is watching. That's how I feel about <laughs> my Twitter feed. Um, that is, I don't know about you, that's never happened to no, me. No, of course that not. Is, I mean, how, how that is the best description of Twitter I've ever heard, though. <laughs> um, yeah, no kidding. But, I mean, for me, social media personally has been so incredibly uh, positive. I would say it's been a 90% positive experience. Despite um, despite a lot of trolls, despite some kind of p- rather performative tweets I've done sometimes when I find myself irresistibly exaggerating, because I know that will get more retweets. That's rather dangerous, especially with the nomic structure of Twitter. Um, I'm trying to avoid that, but it's so irresistible (laughs) it's you know that kind Uh, of entertainment feature of twitter is such a pool for me um helen is more sensible helen is always balanced and sensible and i'm more of an emotional person and have a tendency to let more dirty laundry hang on the line um (laughs) but you are more expressive expressive. that's a lovely way of putting it thank you helen um you know most people would say more insane but i'll go with expressive (laughs) Um, but also I have really, um, I've had my mind changed by many conversations I've had on Twitter. Um, I am a person who mm. tends to change my mind about things fairly readily. Um, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. I'm not sure, but, uh, many Twitter conversations have changed my mind about things or refined my thoughts. Um, I've learned a lot, and I've also made a lot of real-life friends through Twitter. So I have met probably 20 people from Twitter in real life. And in fact, uh, most of almost all of my close friends in India I met initially through Facebook or through Twitter. And now we're now they are my real-life circle of friends. So I would be afraid to meet. Someone on that I met on Twitter, I would think they were going to chop me up into little bitty pieces <laughs> and toss me in a river. No, not really. <laughs> um, I would hope not. Um, so, so moving on real quick, we we have a concept on this show that we call the flawed messenger, and basically that's the idea that people, no matter how righteous or well researched or how well put together, uh, will do or say something wrong or stupid. 
uh, eventually, you know, on a long enough, long enough timeline. And I feel like we are quick to write off a person's entire existence on the basis of, say, like a few tweets or a couple of unpopular viewpoints. And I think Kanye West kind of being immediately iced out for his views on Trump is a really good example of this. Um, do you do you feel like there's a point where someone becomes so flawed that you should write them off completely um, and you know ice them out of, of the conversation? Hmm. I don't think there should be should be societal pressure to do so. I I think um, every individual could um, say of somebody else like there is just nothing. Um, I can respect about your your position at all, and I I don't see any point in in um, in talking to you. And I I say this this quite frequently with with people who come to my timeline deliberately uh, miss points have really fundamentally different views that we we just can't can't discuss. You know, if, if somebody thinks that it, it's acceptable to evaluate people by race, gender, or sexuality, that we, we reach an impasse. So. I think at that point, yes, you know, it, it is sensible to say I give up on you uh, personally, but I, I would stand very strongly against saying this person is now such a terrible person that they must um, lose their job, their their um, public profile, be shunned and uh, exiled. That that's um, that that's much um, much harder to justify, and I couldn't. Yes, I absolutely. I'm against banning anybody from Twitter. I feel that doxing should be the only bannable offense. Um, mm. But I also, um, I think it's perfectly fine for every individual to make use of the mute and block buttons. Um, I dislike in general tarring by association, although there are a few exceptions. So I think that, um, oh, this person retweeted or liked or is friends with X, um, is not a useful way of critiquing the pers- the the friend or the associate. Um, deal with each person's views separately. The exceptions mm-hmm. I was going to say were um, when you seem to be endorsing their views publicly. So that's my problem with uh, Dave Rubin, uh, which maybe we shouldn't get into in too much detail. Or if you are a major political figure and... Um, so, for example, in the case of uh, Modi, um, I usually don't judge people by what they don't comment on or by who they are followed by um, or, or even who they follow on Twitter. But if you look at who he follows, um, it's almost all really extreme people and very, very nasty trolls. Um <clears throat> He follows a lot of extremely nasty trolls, you know, people who send gang rape threats and things like that. Um, And he is silent on many significant issues. For example, um, there's not a peep from him about the um, legalization of homosexuality, the recent legalization here in India. Um, Uh Not a peep. And he's tweeting, you know, multiple times per day. So um, There are some exceptions with public figures where it's a matter of statesmanship to comment on certain things and to distance yourself from certain people. And I have this exact same problem with Jeremy Corbyn too. But in general, um, I think we shouldn't tar by association. We should let everybody decide who they associate with, who they are friends with. Um, And we should take each person separately. And I also think that as far as possible... We should try to engage with one idea at a time. So rather than saying, okay, um, 
I, I just can't take anything this person says seriously. We should look at the specific idea they're proposing at that moment and say, okay, do I agree with this idea or not? Separately from what I think of the person as a whole. Um, and I also agree that there are some people who I feel have made such a strong contribution and such a, an amazingly positive contribution that I'm ready to cut them a lot of slack um, in their current behavior or tweets. Richard Dawkins is one. There's almost nothing he could uh, tweet. Um, there's nothing <laughs> he could tweet that would um, that would turn me against him. Let me ask right. you this: if mm -hmm. if Richard Dawkins kicked a dog, mm -hmm. oh, as a Parsi, would would that turn you against? As him? a Parsi, <laughs> that's a really sorry. That's a, that's a long running yeah. joke oh, in right, our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that uh, as, he, he wouldn't then be Richard Dawkins, right? I mean, I think that I would assume that he is getting kind of old and and losing it a little bit if he did that. Um, uh, as, well, as Helen, I would like that. Yeah, as Helen hates me saying, I'll say for the one hundredth time, dogs are actually venerated in my religion. Um, <laughs> so it's a particularly bad example for me and also I personally love them um, yes I would be upset about that but I still wouldn't write him off because I feel his contribution to liberal thought and to science and to enriching life on this planet has been enormous enormous I yeah. see. well uh, this, this kind of bridges over into another topic we wanted to talk about which was free speech and uh, you know we, we feel like the ongoing debate over free speech always devolves into technicalities and extreme hypotheticals. And, and, you know, often, you know, people start talking about the First Amendment and we're reminded, you know, that it only protects us from government here in the States. But outside of like, you know, national constitutions or libel laws and stuff, there is a principle of free speech that ideally we all want to value. Yeah. Like, like there is like a bit of a burden on society to maintain the principle of free speech. Do you guys agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I've, I've um, argued with an awful lot of Americans about this because of a tendency to conflate the principle of free speech with their own uh, sort of first amendment um, and um, not really look at the philosophical, ethical, sort of intellectual history of this development of, of free speech, which, you know, it, it's, um, it, it's got, so, it has such a long history. It's been argued from so many um, sort of different perspectives. We've had Puritans argue, we've had um, libertarians, obviously Marxists though. And it's, it's this sort of development on on two levels where it is an individual liberty and it is a, an imposition to prevent anybody from um being able to speak any idea not everywhere or to anyone but you know we it's fair to say this idea cannot be spoken um is an imposition on individual liberty but more importantly even than that there's the whole concept of the advance of knowledge and the progress, the and moral progress in society, the belief that the marketplace of ideas by arguing things out civilly, reasonably, honestly, and really quite strongly, um, we get to test ideas against each other. We get to rub off the, the rough edges and refine things and, and progress. I, I think the best book on this ever was um, Jonathan Rausch's Kindly Inquisitors when he sort of develops the concept of liberal 
science a, a process that has that has gained us so much I, I just advocate everyone reading that book and I think this principle is so so big and it is so defining of the progress that that we have made that um, it really it really can't be reduced to things like certain laws and constitutions in certain countries or the belief that anything at all any noises at all can be made with one's mouth you know it's um mm. it needs to be seen as a much bigger thing i would say that um free speech or more accurately it's freedom of expression of ideas um mm. because uh, not absolutely everything you can say um is free speech. For example, if I tell you, yes, I am a registered dentist, here is my certificate, now let me perform a root canal on you. That is not simply free speech. Um, <laughs> uh, but right. Yeah, I think we're crossing the lines into fraud yes, there. Exactly. <laughs> so it's not literally every sound that you can make with your mouth. But if I say that I think root canals are nonsense, and instead you should, um, you should have your horoscope read, and according to your what you have in your sentence sign you should you should drink different different types of tea um you know i think that that is something that people should push back against but i still feel i should be free to say it since i'm not a dentist um Interesting. so um maybe that wasn't the that was a terrible example actually but never mind no um, <laughs> Have, we have kind of a movement. Uh, maybe it's maybe it's global, but at least in the states, um, you know, like the anti-vaxxers mm -hmm. um, who who say all kinds of nonsense about the history of vaccines. I was just reading something today. People said some guy was posting memes about you know polio and said, "Well, the polio vaccine didn't actually work, and they've just changed the diagnosis of polio, and now it's <laughs> cerebral palsy and all this and all that." And it's nonsense. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, yep. But I but I believe strongly in their right. Um, to at least say that nonsense so someone else can come back and say, wait, no, here's, here's the research, guys. Here's, you know, this is obviously wrong and this is why. Um, you know, I think it's dangerous if we start saying, well, uh, you know, let's just shut these people down. Let's ban them from Facebook. Let's get them. Because, you know, maybe someday someone comes along with an unpopular view that's actually right. <laughs> well, you know, I feel that so um – a couple of things. One is that I think that there's a kind of weak defense of free speech, which seems to suggest that if you allow speech to be free, everything will be hunky-dory, that quickly and efficiently good ideas will prevail over bad ideas. Um, and that is absolutely not the case in the short and medium term. I believe it is the case in the long term. And I think history bears me out. In that, so I am a Pinkerian optimist in that sense, looking in a, at a long-term view. Um, I'm very influenced by Stephen Pinker's Enlightenment Now in this uh, in this way of thinking, but I do think that um, allowing free speech allows some people to voice deeply pernicious views, um, views which can. Um, uh, some of those people are very convincing demagogues. They can inspire others to create, to commit abs absolutely horrific atrocities. And uh -huh. so free speech has very, has, I feel, um, more stronger and more worrying trade-offs than any of the other values that I hold. Um, 
its speech can be very harmful. It can be hurtful. It can be harmful. It can be dangerous. Um, it can well, be I don't, bad. I don't, I don't think free speech defenders want anyone to necessarily get their feelings hurt, but we often do find ourselves in the position of defending the worst of the worst. For example, you know, we had the ACLU that actually defended the Charlottesville protesters right. here in the state. Right. So the question is, though, um, why... Why does it become important to protect uh, the worst? And and like and what do, what do we stand to lose if we see somebody? You know, if somebody like Alex Jones gets banned off all the social media platforms, and maybe he's a you know maybe he's not the best example, but we do stand to lose something by not having by by silencing those voices. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I feel as though. Um Freedom of expression has also, as Helen pointed out, brought us almost everything good that we have achieved, um, ethically, scientifically, in terms of literature and art. So against this kind of danger is everything that is positive. It's, I think it's impossible to progress, progress without freedom of expression uh, in any meaningful way. And it's an indivisible value. As soon as you start placing limits upon it, then then you lose it. And I do also feel as though these extreme cases are quite important for our freedom. So I feel that um, restrictions on speech are like a kind of, it's like being, somebody once described it as like being surrounded by giant boa constrictor, which I, is something Helen would probably quite like, um, <laughs> since she is a her pedophile, but it's like being inside this giant boa constrictor and you have to keep pushing back against the snake so as not to be squeezed to death. And so the people who like are the most extreme, um, voicing the most extreme views, they are kind of policing the frontiers for us. And it's very um, important that there is that buffer zone. So it's very important that even the most extreme things can be said. Yeah, I, I, th I think that's um, an essential point in, in the same way we might find um, cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad um, sort of a, a, in some obscene position uh, really disgusting and distasteful. But we would defend the right to be um, obscene, disgusting and distasteful at this kind of extreme because we do not want that frontier to come any closer. But there is also the fact as well that we cannot assume that any terrible idea has been utterly defeated. And this is often the argument we get from the other side is, you know, we know Nazism was was evil and wrong. This has been established. This is no longer up for for debate. This is now, you know, the general the general view. It's it's been it's been won. But people keep getting born. And if they we don't we just cannot assume that they are going to naturally just sort of absorb this received knowledge. And that isn't the way we should absorb things anyway. What we want for our, particularly for our students, but generally for all of us, is to have practice at digging into really awful ideas and saying exactly why they're awful. It isn't enough to say that's racist, that's sexist. Why is racism wrong? Why is sexism wrong? 
you know, learn to argue it, then you will internalize these um, these ethics. You will know how they work. You will be equipped to deal with all kinds of ethical issues and argue them out on, on all kinds of levels. Right. So if we kind of get rid of these these bad ideas from public discourse, um, then the new people coming up don't ever learn how to how to attack by bad ideas. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that they just that 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 is evil. You know, it, it's been the, the debate's been one that that is evil, but this is you know this isn't appreciably different from um, atheism is evil or homosexuality is evil. If we're not giving a rationale, if we don't haven't really thought about or learnt to argue about why something is wrong, it's just a knee jerk reaction. And things like. Um, like white supremacy and and homophobia etc are really quite easy to show why they're wrong but we do need to keep our ability to do that mm-hmm. yeah i agree wholeheartedly um so shifting gears here for just a second uh we wanted to talk a little bit uh we found while doing our research for this episode we came across two really interesting articles one is penned by ona entitled why i still call myself feminist and one by Helen entitled "Why I No Longer Identify as a Feminist." Shot intake of breath <laughs> oh, from Helen. <laughs> Can you each talk a bit about your relationship with modern feminism? Yeah, we we, we don't um, really um, disagree very much on the principles of this. We we have come to different um, conclusions. I I wrote my piece. Um, first and it was at the end of a few years of really trying to convince people that feminism was not lost that it was mostly a few bad apples they were very vocal but we could fix this i was sort of hanging on there with a lot of other sort of liberal feminists that we are just about equality and you know that this still has worth and in the end i just was so unable to do anything productive or communicate with people from this position so much baggage had got attached to it so many feminists were attacking me that in the end I had to say okay I think we're now at a point anyway in the um in in most of the western world where we are at a post-feminist um, a stage we have essentially won this war although they're that you know legally um we we have the rights we have the same opportunities yes there's going to be a, a load of social stuff um which affects uh women expectations of women and expectations of men which are gendered pressure to take certain gender roles that we can carry on dealing with forever but i'm happy now to call myself a post-feminist anyway and i cannot um identify with this movement while it is so irrational and and destructive and counterproductive, mm. so uh, that that was my my position on that. To which um, and for listeners mm. who who uh, who aren't you know intimately familiar, can you give us some examples um, of those of those extremes in feminism? And um, I was um, talking mostly about the the shift that happened in the middle of the the nineties. I was a, a liberal feminist when I first started work and things there were still some um some sexist attitudes some assumptions and I would um enjoy pushing back at them no I'm not going to make the tea oh you called me a clever girl well you're a clever boy you know it was just this kind of um uh yeah we women are everywhere now D- deal with it get used to it and um if you are going to be sexist even even 
you know, lightly jokingly, I'm going to push back at you lightly jokingly. If, if you're going to be nasty, I'm going to be nasty. So there was this quite empowered, I don't know, you all remember the song Sisters Are Doing mm-hmm. It For Themselves? Yep. That That is when I came into feminism most strongly. There was this sense that we had essentially won. There were still some social battles to fight, but there was a celebratory sort of, yes, we have done this and um, the future looks great. And that got replaced over the 90s with the advent of... I mean, it wasn't, well, it was called intersectional feminism then, but they hadn't really taken on the terminology that they have now. But it was this this kind of shift that came from sort of post-colonial guilt and and sort of an awareness of other identities that hadn't been... um, uh, cared about enough people weren't caring enough about um, lesbian women or trans women or um, women of ethnic minority and it all just got rather than this whole sort of universal thing yes we haven't cared enough about um, about uh, about black women about um, Asian women uh, in feminism let's sort that out it was this that were the advent of identity politics which we see now where it just got so so twisted away from um, sisterhood, away from unity, away from individuality and shared humanity, and so much about cultural relativism and um, identity before unity that that it, it was a mess. Um, so my my perspective is that um, first of all, looking globally, and then I'll talk about the West a little bit, but. Um, Globally, I feel that it's still necessary to be an advocate for women's rights um, and that women are um, disadvantaged, oppressed, um, suppressed um, in many, many countries and societies in the most, um, often in the most extreme and horrific ways. And this is not to say that um, it is men who are doing the oppressing. So I don't find it useful to think of this as a battle of the sexes, men against women. It's, um, it's certain conservative ideas that I want to combat, um, most of which are based in, in religion, um, but not always. And... Um, so, for example, here in India, we have a strong gender imbalance because uh, so many people have gender-selective abortions and many women are forced into gender-selective abortions. We also really? have... Yes, yes. Um, and uh, we also have problems with um, female children are much more likely to have malnutrition than male children um, because boys are preferentially fed over girls. Um, so, and we also have, you know, many examples of, um, uh, dowry killings. Um, we also, we've also had punitive gang rapes. Um, you know, that some community is being, some community or group or family are being punished by raping the, the women. Um, there are so many awful, um, Of course, things are changing in India, but so many terrible things are still happening. And there are also smaller things. For example, it's very difficult to 
find a to rent a flat or a room if you're a single woman because you're expected to be either w- living with your parents or married. Um, mm. There's no mm. space in between. All of these are attitudes which are changing, but they're absolutely rife still. And so I... Um, and that's that's just India. So there are many countries in which there are uh, massive injustices against women. Um, and then mm-hmm. looking just at the West, I feel as though there is legal equality and there is broad acceptance of um, equality between men and women, but I still see certain attitudes creeping back and I want to be vigilant against them. And I see those, I see the main threats being in a kind of cultural relativism, which valorizes, um, valorizes ethics, uh, ethical codes, which are seen as brown or black people's ethical codes, um, and which are often deeply misogynistic. So we see this in a kind of um, rosy, uh, rosy spectacled view of Islam, um, of traditional Islam, and uh, for example, glamorization of the hijab. I certainly think everyone should be free to wear hijab as they wish, and um, I'm surrounded by women in hijab, and they're very lovely people, and I have, it doesn't make me at all uncomfortable to be. Uh, relating to someone who is wearing hijab, but I don't like the uh, hijab being sold as just another fashion choice. I think we should uh-huh. fight back against mm. modest, modesty dress of all kinds. Um, that's Hijab is just one example. It's not unique to Islam. Um, and then also I think that there is um, there's also a threat from the trad right and the far right um, who are kind of advocating a sort of return of women to the to the kitchen and to motherhood and um and I also feel that there's a uh women will always require some societal protections simply because uh we have less upper body strength than men and until we're all I mean this might be an argument for uh more gun ownership something I don't usually argue for <laughs> but until we're all fully equipped with inbuilt phaser weapons. Um, it's Where new Star Trek would sum up, come up some. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's always going to be the case that uh, women are in a disadvantaged position just biologically. Um, and so protections must be in place. I think those are, those are some of the basics. We've uh, we've seen a response of sorts to postmodern intersectional feminism in the men's rights movement, the men going their own way and the incel movements. Even even I think everybody's favorite crazy guru, Jordan Peterson. Um, I think while there are certainly varying degrees of craziness and extremism in those movements, I think that just like postmodernism or postmodern feminism, there are grains of truth and folks who are just lashing out in anger born of pain as well. I don't know. You've written before about how the reasonable voices in feminism and men's rights have similar aims and should work together. Can you talk about how those uh, or what those similarities are and how we might build those bridges? Um, so I think one of them is in the expectation of who will do the childcare, which obviously is something that each 
individual couple can decide. Um, but I feel there is a strong societal expectation that it um, it will be the woman's either her job or her right to look after the children. And um, men's rights groups are focused on men who are unjustly denied custody or access to children. And women's groups are focused on lack of, of um, affordable childcare and support um, for people who want to look after children, particularly if they want to do so in a non-traditional manner or sharing the burden, etc. Um, and so there's an obvious overlap of interest there. Uh-huh. That's one example. I would also say another example is um, infant um, genital mutilation um, or uh-huh. genital surgeries. Mutilation is a very inflammatory term. Um, but um, I think that although um, female genital mutilation in most of its forms is far, far more, ex- you know, immeasurably more extreme and harmful than male circumcision, nevertheless, it's easier to oppose if we're just consistent and oppose um, all surgeries done on infants who cannot consent, which uh, do not have um, a vital medical reason behind them. Um, Everything else goes against the Hippocratic Oath, and we can can oppose it on that basis Mm -hmm. um, for both parties. So those are a couple of issues on which I think we could work together. Um, And I I certainly don't feel that this has anything to do with women versus men because a lot of women hold very conservative views, um, which um, views which mitigate against equality. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's the views that we should oppose, not, um, not one sex or the other. Yeah, no, I, I think I think you're spot on. And I think that bears out in the conversations that at least some of, again, the reasonable voices in those movements are having about uh, parental rights uh, here in the States. You know, oftentimes the uh, you know, when there's a divorce or, or something of that nature, uh, children are just automatically awarded uh, to the mother. And I think both uh, the the feminist movements here in the States and the men's rights movements here in the States have figured out that that is the same animal that is causing the sometimes, you know, undesirable outcome for both parties. You know, and I, and I think there really is a place where we can kind of find ways to move forward, uh, you know, and, and still, you know, again, still have our differences, but find ways to move forward together. I think there need to be equal rights and responsibilities for both parents, except in some extreme edge cases. So I have recently read Andrew Solomon's work, which is about, um, he's written about rapists trying to claim parental rights over children conceived in the, in the rape. That's obviously an edge case in which I would not be in favor of the, of paternal rights. Um, but, uh, in, in many cases, um, we have, on the one hand, fathers who are denied visitation rights and on the, uh, unjustly. I mean, there are some fathers who deserve to be denied, clearly. Um, there are abusers, etc. But um, setting aside those cases. And on the other hand, we have um, fathers not paying child support. So right. in both cases, we have an 
we need an equality of rights and responsibilities towards the children on the part of both parents. Uh, individuals can still decide to uh, that one or the other is going to be the primary caregiver. That's fine. That's personal freedom. But there should be society should be set up in such a way that they can decide that freely and not be obliged. Um, sliding over here, Helen, uh, I'd like to ask you. You wrote a wonderful piece about the issues regarding fat shaming and the body positivity movement. Mm-hmm. Um, I see folks in many places and on a number of issues from personal health to rape, uh, making the case that victim blaming or shaming is sending the wrong message and reinforcing societal expectations that normalize terrible behaviors. For instance, by telling my daughter to be wary of or avoid a frat party, I'm putting the onus on her to change her behavior rather than a would-be rapist. However, part of me sees that as the same as if I told my son, hey, you know, if you're in a large crowd, keep your wallet in your side pocket, not the back. So as the father of a 13-year-old girl, <laughs> I'm asking, help me out here. Where, where are the lines between constructive criticism, advice, shaming, and blaming? I... I, I... What I've found when, I, when I've um, talked to uh, feminists about this and we, we've disagreed on, on what constitutes shaming and what constitutes blaming um, is, is that they tend to see value in me, a mother, advising my daughter. They don't tend to see this in the same way, but um, it, it is all, all very inconsistent. And I think it comes down to what are we calling um, blame there isn't a logical connection between saying um, this is a way to stay safer because criminals exist and saying if you don't do this you deserve to become the victim of a criminal that's that's the the what we what we have to break down because I, I noticed um, in, in my area there was a big complaint about a sign which avoided which warned women not to um, to I think it I think it was um, I think it was about alcohol. It was uh, watch how much you drink when you're out alone, and there was a big feminist outcry to that. But then about a month later, there was another advert which um, said avoid um, unlicensed cabs um, because there have been some um, some accusations of sexual assault taking part in them, and this was seen as helpful. And I, I this this doesn't. You know, because women, when women were seen as causing themselves to be unsafe because they were drinking, then there was much, much more lashback. Obviously, women should be able to uh, be completely unconscious and the 100% of the blame for any sexual assault that happens is on the man. That doesn't mean that it's it's sensible or safe to be completely unconscious somewhere. Right, but, right. but when it comes to... That warning about um, avoiding um, unlicensed cabs, there wasn't the pushback because the blame wasn't on so much. It it was directed much more at the men. So I don't know. To that father, I would, I I would um, recommend him to advise his daughter in all the ways that he thinks is is sensible and all the ways that are are shown to be to be reasonable and realistic but he can certainly also do this by uh, at the same time as saying should she ever become the victim of any kind 
of crime, it's the the blame for it is is one hundred percent on the criminal. Uh, so, uh, Helen, I don't think this uh, this interview uh, we wouldn't be doing it justice if we didn't talk a little bit about postmodernism. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think there have been some increasing calls that postmodernism and cultural Marxism are just straw men that are being used to foment fascism and Nazism. Uh, you know, by the people who are criticizing postmodernism. <laughs> how, how do you answer these claims? Is there any truth oh, to that? There's, there's, um, there's certainly there's some truth. I mean, there, there's much more um, truth to, I, I don't know particularly about fascism or Nazism, but there certainly is a, a line of rhetoric which, um, which falsely conflates postmodernism with Marxism um, to produce the entirely nonsensical concept of cultural Marxism, which... Um, sort of works in service of uniting the two enemies of the right the economic left and the post and the um identitarian left into one baddie that can then be connected with gulags and mass starvation and communism and totalitarianism so that that narrative is certainly going on but um i th- there there's also a need to seriously understand a a shift in the status of um, knowledge and in ethics, which happened in the sort of late sixties with the development of postmodern theory. The idea that um, objective truth was unobtainable, that everything is um, constructed in language, and that this is done in the service of power and um, people are positioned within various um, uh, sort of structures of power and then the power speaks through them so it's um, it's it's all quite deterministic it's it's um, sort of removes the individual it removes our shared humanity there's this focus now on uh, positioning and that that was the original um, postmodernists um, obviously at the now a million people will say well that's incredibly simplistic about what postmodernism is well yes it is this is a podcast where I'm just picking out a couple of issues which have carried on till today but then in the 90s we've had a development um, from this really quite unusable thing where nothing is is really real and everything's a construct and it's all hopeless you couldn't do a lot with the original postmodernism but when the next wave of critical theory intersectionality critical race theory queer theory post-colonialism came in and they took the whole cultural constructivist idea of postmodernism um and they added politics to it. Kimberly Crenshaw, the, the founder of, of intersectionality, says this very explicitly. It's um, intersectionality is contemporary politics uh, linked with postmodern theory. So this then became much more user friendly. It became much more actionable. We can now say that there are some objective truths, some consistencies. They are in terms of power and privilege. But we still have this epistemology you know, the ways of, of knowing, ways of determining what is true, which is based on the postmodern idea of um, perspective. So it, we have the kind of mess that we have now, which people will quite rightly tell you, well, that isn't postmodernism. The postmodernists weren't identity, weren't into identity politics. They, they didn't, they weren't this kind of activist. No, they weren't. They were much less structured. This is the next generation which has become more politicized which has become 
condensed, bastardised, really, and these few concepts of of um, constructed knowledge and, and systems of power have have gone on to produce what we're seeing now in the terms of some of the the lunacy, the sort of ideologically motivated lunacy coming out of um, some departments of um, uh, the humanities and social sciences, and what we're seeing in um, in social justice activism. It seems like, uh, in a sense, you're saying that we're we're being gaslit from both sides. I mean, as as the right tries to turn it into the the cultural Marxism super mm. beast, and the left tries to tell us, "Oh, it's not a problem at all. Don't worry about it." Like both sides are kind of leading us astray. On, on yeah, and, and this is is a lot of the time this isn't in this isn't a, a deliberate maneuver. Postmodernism and the critical theory which came after it is us really very difficult to understand. You know that the the temptation to seize on a simplistic explanation either yeah it, it's just um, marxism applied to to culture or uh, it's it's just um uh being critical of um big overarching stories they're much much easier to understand than what actually has happened that the whole sort of body of ideas which have have become um become sort of established in certain forms of knowledge production and in certain ideologies Hey folks, hope you've enjoyed the interview so far, and I'm sorry for interrupting, but I kind of feel guilty and I wanted to let you guys know that this episode was actually recorded a few weeks ago, before Helen went hard in the paint with the whole SoCal Squared hoax that's received pretty widespread media attention. So, if you found this episode hoping to get some information on that, I do sincerely apologize. But you could just go check out aereomagazine.com or Helen and Iona's podcast, Two for Tea, which you can find in all the usual places, or follow Helen and Iona on Twitter, at HPluckRose and at Iona Italia. Those links and more can also be found in the show notes. And for those listeners who've been with us a while, wondering if Beans is going to fact check us today, the answer is no. He actually ran off with theory for a team-building exercise in the mountains. And before you guys clown me for apparently not being part of the team, Bean said they only had two drums and they weren't trying to harsh my quad or anything, but it just had to be done. So with that said, catch us for next week's episode where we'll talk voter disenfranchisement only to have our fact checker extraordinaire, I hate having to say that, but it's in the contract, Beans, tell us all the tiny nitpicky ways that we screwed up. And now, back to the show. Well, if, if one thing is true, it's that uh, things are rarely as easy as they seem. Just like putting this podcast together today was not nearly as easy as it would seem. Uh, we've run into numerous technical difficulties along the way. Um, but hopefully, we have come up with something that's interesting and entertaining to the listeners, uh, maybe a little bit educational. Um, before we kind of wrap this episode up, though, I want to put you guys on the spot. And this is where the real questions get answered. This is where the rubber meets the road. We are going to ask you guys some rapid fire questions, and I want you guys to answer as quickly as possible. Um, Theory is going to ask Helen questions. I'm going to ask Iona questions. Are you guys ready? Uh, no, we're ready. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready. Uh, Iona is a much more spontaneous. Ready or not? <laughs> Um, so I will start it off. The first question is going to be at Helen. Mm-hmm. Helen, coffee or tea? Tea. Iona, morning person or night owl? 
both. <laughs> I like. Okay. I take an afternoon nap. <laughs> <laughs> Helen, uh, chips or fries? <laughs> um, chips. That's a sneaky one. Chips. What are fries? <laughs> <laughs> Iona, Star Wars or Star Trek? Oh, come on. Do you, what, who, what kind of girl do you take me for? Trek. <laughs> All the way. All right. Helen, uh, nature or nurture? Both. All right. Ah, I like that answer. Iona, QAnon. Um, do you mean Q as in Star Trek's Q? <laughs> <laughs> no, I did not, but I'll take that answer. <laughs> Helen, uh, uh, how much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? Oh, God, please stop it. <laughs> <laughs> Iona, tall, dark, and handsome, or short, pale, and baby-faced? Um, I would like short, dark, and baby-faced. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, Helen, uh, Elvis or Sinatra? Uh, Elvis. Okay. And for the both of you, if you had one word to describe what humanity is most in need of, what would it be? Would that be Taylor Swift? Yes! (laughs) Taylor Swift. (laughs) How did you get to them, man? Hey folks, it's Theory of the Sense and Theory Podcast. Just wanted to take a second to thank you for continuing to listen and support the show. We really appreciate it. It means the world to us. Uh, If you get a chance, please go to iTunes, leave us a review, uh, like us. Uh, You know, it really helps a podcast uh, take off. And, uh, you know, get at us on uh, social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're at all the usual places. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, Feel free to email us at uh, senseandtheorypodcast at gmail.com. Show ideas, suggestions, critiques, uh, condemnations, it's all good. Send it our way. Uh, We'll see you next week.